Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. And uh, we're back. We are back. The second one in a row. Yeah. I think we do three and then it's... Uh... Well, we're, we're going to hit... We're going to have new episodes all through the holidays. But yeah. we may have some creative recording opportunities. A little break. Opportunities. Yeah, having some fun. Yeah. Uh, so how's your day going? Pretty good. I mean, working, you know. Yeah. Work. Well, so uh, my day started out uh, with doing live TV, and then I had to go do my- At what time? Uh, 4.30 in the mornings when I get up. Um, Man. And then battled the snowy roads uh, to get to Utah County, uh, and had a wonderful live morning shot, and then I had to go back to my- You had, you had to drive all the way to Utah, Utah County. County? Yeah. Wow. And then, uh, and then I went to my other job, which is a marketer for a title company. Right. It's called Old Republic Title. Yep. And they've been wonderful to me. And so we had this meeting, and as they're giving me motivation to get out there, because it's a down economy, but you know businesses will tell you this is a good time to make moves, where you can acquire new clients and all that stuff. So they, they often start out by giving you motivation to kind of get you motivated through the day and, and to go out and do Pump your you job. Pump you up. Pump you up. Yep. And so uh, the guy who sat down and was running the meeting, he goes, do you know about this word? And I thought, I didn't know about the word, but you probably did. You know about anti-fragile, anti-fragile? Is that something? Fragile. Well, and that's must what I thought Italian. about the Christmas story, and that's goes. That must be expensive. anti-fragile. I mean, I can put those words together. Yeah, that so, means it's strong. Y- yes. 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 And so, <laughs> so they were talking about you know things yeah. that like that, like a human is anti-fragile. Okay. Does that not make sense? I I'm I'm, I'm with you. Okay. So we're resilient. Like, we're strong. Yeah. So, so we're anti fragile. It seems like we're making up words now. But go ahead. Well, I bought into it because I. Yeah, it's a, I nice, him, I, it's it, a good it's idea. Like, it was like I just watched a Rocky movie. I was ready to fight anybody who stood in front of me. I mean, you could have. He could have just said resilient. Resilient. But yeah. okay. Well, so he said anti fragile. I like it. Sure. And then he went on to talk about how. Uh, Pressure is a privilege. And it's because he read this story in Forbes magazine from Billie Jean King. You know who she was? <laughs> I'm not making this up, bro. I don't know why you're laughing. It's like we got Forbes magazine, Billie Jean King, and, and life philosophy. I love it. Yes. Bring it on. But, but he, like, She's he was, a tennis, great, famous yes. tennis player. And yeah. she was talking about how pressure is a privilege. Sure. And what a responsibility and what an opportunity that was. And she went on to say that... Uh, like the pressure of her career. Of her career. Having to compete against other people. Sure. And yeah. at one point, she's standing out there in the middle of Wimbledon, and 
She had some anxiety and some pressure going because this is what she'd been fighting for. This is what she'd been going for. Right. And so what an opportunity this was to prove to herself and to her family and to her friends and to followers and even the naysayers, if you will. Sure. And then she goes on to say, you know, life would be pretty good if there was no pressure because then there's no expectation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and But when you really strip that down, how sad is that? Right. You, you know what I mean? And so that goes back to telling you that pressure is a privilege because you have people depending on you. You have things that you're shooting for and that you're going for. So to feel that pressure means that you're moving in the right direction. It's a it's a privilege in what sense? Um, that you've got yourself in a position where there is pressure on you to perform, to do the things that so you have. It means you have an opportunity to make something happen. happen. Yes. Yeah. OK. Uh, and then they go on to say, uh, you know. What's the use of a gift if you don't share it with others? You might just enjoy it yourself. Well, <laughs> but I think the true use. Sorry, I'm being snarky. The, no, I, think I know what you're tr- saying. The true use of a gift like a, is giving it to others. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to kind of the recovery yeah. is that somebody gave me the gift and they picked up the phone and they listened a lot to of, me. A lot of somebody's, right? And they helped yeah. me. Yeah. And whether it was you, my family, my girlfriend, my ex-wife, my kids, there were so many people there that, you know, were there and afforded me this gift. Yeah. And so that's what I want to do with this podcast is give this back to the community that's given me so much. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really love that. And then the last one that they had is pressure can break an egg, but don't forget it's the same thing that can form a diamond. So you got to figure out who you are and how you're going to handle pressure. Right. And that pressure is a privilege that you'll be able to grow from that. Because it brings me back to what you said early on in the podcast. Resistance promotes growth. Exactly right. Yep. I felt like I just gave a talk. You did. I, I feel like this is a good TED talk. And when, 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 when he was telling to me, I was, I was buying. I, I no, everything he said is true. I mean, except for the science on pressure creating diamonds, but we won't get into that. But it's a nice thought. It doesn't? Not really. No, that's not how diamonds are made. But I like the thought and it's a nice analogy and we all have bought into it. And so we'll just go with it. Well, you know what? With your attitude right now, you could be on Santa's naughty list. (laughs) You're not playing well this morning. I I know. I'm being a little snarky. Um, But I am actually 100% on board with everything you're saying. And the truth is that I, you've had so, like well, so what I was thinking when you said the pressure, the pressure is is a privilege, and then you know gifts are to be shared, and it's like well, so so does that mean like when you feel the pressure? Because right before we started the show today, mm-hmm. you were talking about a golf tournament. We won't name the the tournament, but the, by the end of the tournament, because there was so much alcohol involved, everybody was just sloppy drunk, and, right? You know, and there's pressure in your life all the time because you travel a lot, you're around alcohol often, uh, you've chosen not to try to cut that out of your life in a social way, but personally it is cut out of your life. So the pressure when you feel that you're around alcohol and everything, does that feel like a privilege to keep giving back to the people that gave to you Yes, to, to continue to be sober? A hundred percent. And to be honest, I didn't... I didn't see a world that I could live in that I could cut it out of because of who I am and what I do. 
Like back in the day. Well, no, no. Like right now, oh. like where you say I cut out uh, alcohol. I cut it out for myself oh, because I, I can't yeah, yeah. handle it. You'd have to have a total career life change to and, do that. Right? And that's not a life I want to live. Right. I want to do what I do and what I love. And I want to hang out with the people who I love and like. And some of them imbibe. Some of them party. And some of them do right. those. But for me, I know that alcohol is no good in my system. Nothing good is going to come from putting any alcohol in my system. And 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 – to the opposite side of that, it is going to ruin everything that I've worked so hard to get back. Yeah. So I think that would go back to the pressure is a privilege. And, and I've got the privilege of being able to do what I love and hang out with who I want. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I can't drink and I don't want to drink because I have this privilege of living this life that I want. Well, I can just tell you, um, I get feedback on a pretty regular basis from people uh, some people who've just barely found out that you were sober, that, you know, don't tune into the news all the time. And now you're back. And I've had some people say, don't you know, Casey, where'd he go? And I said, well, we actually do a show together. We talk, you know, about it and finding out that lots and lots of people have been positively influenced by you dealing with this pressure of being sober. And I think you don't really see it so much as a negative pressure anymore. I think no. you see it as a privilege. A hundred percent privilege. Yeah. That, but yeah. but it, it is a privilege because it's a gift that you get to give back to others, again, kind of along the lines of this. The, so this whole thing's thrown me off. I just like as I, I got to take a break here no, for yeah, a second. Okay, yeah. Okay, like I don't know. Josh, are you OK with this? Because what I'm seeing here is, first of all, he has leather shoes on and, uh-huh. a, and a pair of pants. Okay, so what I'm seeing here, I want the listeners to imagine. So I'm I'm looking at Casey for the first time in my life. He has nice suede leather shoes on, a pair of khakis, a sweater with a collar poking out underneath, which I I didn't know you owned, and you have a notebook with a pen, and you took notes this morning. I did. This is I am living in bizarro world right now. Normally, if you see me this dressed up, it means I'm going to court. Yeah. But I don't go to court anymore. But I've never seen you take notes about anything. I've done shows with you. We've done radio. We've done TV. We've done podcasts. I've never seen you take a note. I'm, I'm trying this to change. This is the new. I'm, I'm trying to get. The new and improved. I'm trying to be better. Wow. Right? I'm impressed. Don't get used to it. <laughs> I didn't know you even had a sweater or a shirt with a collar. I'm I am impressed. Thank you. You are now. You do have a hat with a hot dog on it. Yeah. And to be fair, this is a golf shirt underneath it. <laughs> I knew it was, but yeah. I wasn't going to blow that for the listeners. It's but okay. You but you do have a golf golf hat with a hot dog on it. It's a glizzy a, and whatever that is. I know we tried to talk about that ahead of time, but I just that's still, what the kids call a hot dog. I, so they'll be like, "Hey, let's go to the Costco and get a glizzy." Since you don't know what a glizzy is, I'm not sure you should say that. It's it a hot dog. Be, well, I'm pretty sure this is. The glizzy it hat. could be a euphemism. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's just a hot dog. Okay, all right, cool. I'm going to have to look up uh, that in the Urban Dictionary later. The glizzy. The answer you're going to get there will not be one you want. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Well, I hope it's a hot dog. <laughs> it won't be. I, I'm glad you brought this up because yesterday I actually had a long conversation with somebody about that quote that I like, which you brought up, which is "resistance promotes growth." Mm-hmm. And if you look at that on a gl- like a universal global level on every level of life everything that grows has to go through some resistance everything whether we're talking about plants or how babies are born muscles or how you create yeah get in healthy shape how you produce anything uh how you learn anything 
we have to go through resistance in order to grow. And I was having this sort of philosophical conversation with this 20-something who was feeling really down about the trials and struggles that they're having in their life right now, which are many. Um, But the reality is, if you see it as a privilege, if you're like, this is an opportunity for me to grow, it's usually never almost never one we want yeah right like most of the time our our struggles are put upon us or maybe are a result of our behavior but they're not things we seek out typically but they are opportunities to grow and so i think that uh everybody should start their day uh with somebody kind of giving them a a a pump up speech to to, to look good. at your things that way. I can tell you, you that was positive for you. You took if, notes, so I'm yeah. I'm impressed. And I don't know if I heard this in the Bible or from a <laughs> uh, Rocky movie. But I'm guessing this the latter. But go ahead. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I feel like that's a Rocky movie thing. I, yeah, probably. Yeah, but that's but boiling it down. That's what all this means. If it doesn't kill you, it's going to make you stronger on the other side. Whether it's addiction, whether it's financial, whether it's relationship, you know, if you make it on the other side, you're going to be a better person for you it. You can take all those challenges and grow from them. And I think a lot of it has to do with perception and having conversations like this um, with people help shape our perception of things. So I, I think that's awesome. No, uh, I'm I'm. I'm glad you had that experience, and I'm glad that I'm seeing you, the the new and improved uh, Casey Scott, yeah, PhD, Glizzy, Professor Glizzy. <laughs> I love it. Hey, well, we've got a great show for you today, if you're still around, and we hopefully you are. Uh, her name I think is, that was one of our best intros. I liked it. But wait till you meet Saquon. I, yeah. Saquon, do you feel like in your life you've had a lot of pressure, a lot of resistance, a lot of ups, downs, and growth on the other end? Absolutely. And we can't wait to hear your story. You're listening to Project Recovery. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Saquon. Did I get it right that time? Yes. Saquon Colobus. Yes. And where does the story of Saquon Colobus begin? Oh, it all started as a fetus. Yeah. <laughs> You're taking us way back. Yes. Um, so born in the 80s. Yeah. Born addicted to PCP. You were a born addicted. Okay, so so party, your, your, party started right from the beginning. Your mom was a PCP user. Yes, and so you're born uh, and addicted to that. Yes, and so I don't even know how that works. I mean, I mean, I know how that works, but so when you're in the hospital, they have to detox you from it, or what happens? She had me at home. Oh, with a midwife. Okay, and she was actually uh, she was on mushrooms the day she had me. Mm-hmm. She did coke the first three months she was breastfeeding me. So it's just. So your, your system was flooded yeah. with substances from the get-go. Mm-hmm. 
Did did you do you know if if you were born underweight? Did you need any extra? Oh, no. no, okay. Because no. sometimes mm. th- that can create like uh, an er- early delivery, an underweight baby. Yeah. Um, but no, I was uh, uh, eight know. pounds, eight pounds, oh, ten yeah. ounces. I think that's a good size baby. Yeah. So I, I got to ask you, how do you know? Like that your mom was doing cocaine the first three months of your life and she was on mushrooms. Like when you find out this information, did she say it to you in a bragging way or does that make sense? Mm Because I I wonder how you get that kind of information. Right. Funny story. Yeah. Um, I was 15 and my parents had their their bedroom in the the downstairs part of the house. And I was going downstairs. I was going to borrow my mom's Walkman, like CD player Walkman, because I was going to go work out. Uh-huh. So I go down, and I just, I didn't know she was in her room. And I just walked in her bedroom. And when I walked in, she was just coming up from doing a line. And I was like, whoa. You know, I knew my mom partied. We talked about it. I didn't know she partied like that. Yeah. But. Um, At 15, did you know what cocaine was and snort, snorting cocaine and all that? Yeah. yeah. Um, you watch TV. You but, knew. Yeah. This time <laughs> So she started doing meth when I was three, and that's was her thing. So that's what she was doing. So I walked in. I was like, oh, that's okay. It kind of bothered me because, I mean, hello, you see your parents doing a line. You're like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, that's- and then she turned around. She saw me. She goes, oh, my gosh. I never wanted my kids to see me doing that. But now that the secret's out of the – you know, now that the secret's out. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you everything. So she sat you down. Yeah. I smoked angel dust every day when I was pregnant with you. That's why you're so smart. (laughs) That was her interpretation, huh? Yeah. So she gave you a a history and a schooling of all the drugs she Mm -hmm. was currently in taking. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you remember the first time you tried a substance? Mm Mm-hmm. When? Um, first time I ever tried, I mean, tried to smoke weed when I was 13 with my older brother, um, did acid in junior high with some friends. But then the first time, um, I ever did meth was off of her stash and it was after I saw her doing it. I was like, Hmm, I think I might want to try that. See what the big deal is. And was it a big deal? So you were 15 at the time. And I would just go down there and like steal little like pinches out of her stash and go on that workout bike like a maniac. <laughs> wow. So so do you feel like – I'm just kind of back to the neurodevelopment part. <laughs> like your mom said you're really smart. Mm-hmm. Did, do you feel like there were any negative effects? Because it's, it's funny how neurodevelopment happens. Sometimes little things can create big changes in a – a fetus and an infant and sometimes not. So mm-hmm. any learning disabilities, problems like that growing up that, that you... Do you feel like you were a smart child? Yeah, I was always in the gifted classes. Okay. So, I mean, I hate to say that she was right, but emotionally... Well, let me just throw a little wrench in that oh, statistic. Okay, okay please, no, please. Not do. really. I'm just going to say uh, there were a lot of other kids in the gifted classes whose mm-hmm. parents didn't use yeah. angel dust. So I'm just saying yeah. oh, it yeah. probably <laughs> wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you were probably uh, very bright naturally mm-hmm. and were in the gifted class despite the fact that mm-hmm. your mom used angel yeah. dust. I'm just saying. Yeah. 
Oh no, stats wise, that's that's the angle I would take. Yeah. So you should you should own it. It wasn't mom's angel dust. It was all yeah. you. So you smoked weed with your brother when you were thirteen. Tried you to. Tried yeah, to. You tried to. What does that mean? You said that twice. Bill Clinton. I didn't inhale. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then at 15, you took acid with some friends at school, and then that's when you found out about your mom's stash of meth. And you... no, I, no, I did acid when I was 13. Oh wow! Yeah. And then you started, uh, you know, pinching some stuff off of your mom's supply. Mm-hmm. And did you fall in love with meth instantaneously? I thought it was pretty cool. What did you like about it? Um, just the the bzzz feeling. You like the buzz. Mm-hmm. So the other two drugs that you tried—the not inhaling the weed and the and mm-hmm. the acid—those th- are going to be sort of trippy and mellow and mm-hmm. and psychedelic, perhaps for a kid. It doesn't seem like you gravitated that way. You went. Oh no, more I, t- I I like those. Oh, you like those too. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, because eventually I did start inhaling. <laughs> okay, and but sometimes people they 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 kind of find their DOC based on experimenting and something will really hook them. Mm-hmm. So for you, was it sort of poly substance abuse, anything goes, or did you really yeah. like the, the, the meth? I liked uh, the psychedelics. And when I turned, I think I first did ecstasy, I was 16 or 17. That was my jam for like two or three years, you know, getting into the rave scene. And mm-hmm. so, so I need to paint a picture for people at home uh, who are just listening. Uh, some people watch us on YouTube. Some watch us on through Facebook and stuff like that. But uh, you're a beautiful lady, but you've got a fluorescent green mohawk, <laughs> a nice tattoo over your chest. Uh, yeah. Uh, you some, some vibrant colored glasses. Um, did you always kind of go down that lane in junior high and high school? Yes. And so that was kind of who were your people in high school? Um, the punks, the punk rockers, the, well, seventh grade was more of like the deadhead, eh, you know, stoner crowd. Mm-hmm. And then, uh. Thus the acid. Yeah. <laughs> um, found the minor threat, black flag, misfit crowd. Yeah. Yeah. The goths, gothic industrials. And then you started getting into raves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why you're, you know, partying in your early years, let's just say 15 to 18, mm-hmm. uh, still going to school, still living at home? Um, so I actually took some college classes when I was in 10th grade to apply towards graduation credits. So I did that for a couple of years and... Um, my mom signed me out my senior year because I just – I was – high school wasn't doing it for me anymore. Mm-hmm. So she signed me out and I went to, you know, Horizonte where you just fill out some packets and you're done. Alternative high school here yep. in Salt Lake. Yep. So. So graduated early. Yeah. Uh, Wish I would have stayed in and actually got like my high school. Diploma. Yeah. At any point, do you start partying with your mom? No. That's one thing that – I don't know. It was just a, a feeling <clears> – I didn't want to cross that line. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, I, I mean, party, I don't, but – I party with my friends. Like, we go hard to the paint. I party with my people, not my mom. It just didn't feel – Did your parents approve of you using? Did they know how much you were using? Did you get caught – Pinching from your mom's stash. In trouble with the law. 
so I didn't get in trouble with the law until 22, 22. Um, up until then, no, she, cause I was just doing like little bits at a time and then I'm, you know, of course you find your own people. So I'd start getting my own stuff, but. I mean, she, she was fine with me. Like she knew I'd tried acid. She knew, you know, I was smoking weed. So they were kind of like the, the term is cool parents. Like they, they allow, they didn't try to stop you from doing it. Well, my dad was gone a lot cause he works in the movie industry or worked in the movie industry. Um, so he was out of state a lot. So he, he was there as much as he could be, mm-hmm. but my mom was just like, yeah, whatever, you know, Woodstock, Hey, peace, love, drugs, sex. So you you graduated a little early. You wish you would have stayed around to get your actual diploma, but that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, after high school, where do you go? Um, I took some more college classes. Just for did you, have, did to you do. have a profession in mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, just no. just thought this is what um, I you're wanted to do, to do fashion design, but I was partying too hard really to to make it out of state to the school that I wanted to go to. So, but I got, uh, I got my own little apartment that only lasted four and a half months. Why? Cause I was working at Contempo casuals and <laughs> crossroads mall making like four something an hour or five something an hour. So, um, do you fall in love? Yeah. <laughs> I thought I met the man of my dreams when I was 17. Uh huh. Met him at 17, <clears throat> married at 18. Okay. Baby at 19. Uh huh. Separated at 20. Uh huh. Divorced at 21. Huh. <clears throat> well, there was a big event every year. Yeah. Gotta <laughs> give you that. Yes. Well, that, I mean, that's sort of the path that, that a lot of people take, I mm-hmm. think, right? We think. At a young age, A, we, we've got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. B, somehow a relationship is going to help us be a grown-up, and then we realize that maybe those relationships aren't the best. So how, yeah. how, did, how did how did the divorce end? Yeah. Why? Um, so after we had our daughter, mm-hmm. who was the coolest kid on the face of the planet, um, There was no like physical relationship between he and I anymore. And, you know, I wanted to work it out, you know, new mom, new wife, barely 19 years old. Like this is kind of what I'm planning on doing with the rest of my life, you know. Mm-hmm. And he sits down with me and he's like, well, Saquon, it's after you had the baby, I just completely lost all my attraction to you. I think that's the root of all of our problems. Wow. Okay, well, I should be the most beautiful woman on the face of the planet to you now, but I guess watching that come out just ruined it for you. And that sounds like you didn't take it too well. No, no. I moved back in with mom and started getting high again. And can I can I ask you? I mean, it's a pretty personal question, I guess, but. You know, your mom used mm-hmm. during her pregnancy with you, and she admitted to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you use no. d- during your pregnancy? Assume, so I vowed when I found out I was pregnant, I vowed I would never have the type of relationship with my daughter that I had with my mom because it was very toxic 
Um, so just to give you an overview of how my teenage years went, 12 years old. The D.A.R.E. program. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the D.A.R.E. Okay. program. So I come home from school. I'm in sixth grade. Okay, Mom, they're having this contest. Whoever makes the best D.A.R.E. poster gets a free D.A.R.E. t-shirt. Will you help me make a D.A.R.E. poster? <gasps> Absolutely not. Well, why, why not? Because the D.A.R.E. program is the government's way to brainwashing our children. You need to try every drug at least once and see which one's going to be yours. I hope it's not heroin, but if it is, take the pill form. Don't shoot it. So your mom had a different kind of drug education in mind yeah. for you. Yeah. Hers was dare also. It's drugs are really expensive. <laughs> yeah. Dare dare to try drugs yeah. apparently was yep. was So how did that affect a little 12-year-old person who was so excited about the poster and then all of a sudden you meet with the opposite message? You're giving me permission to go out and Oh. It was on and cracking. It was on and cracking. And mm-hmm. we're going to find out what that means in just a few seconds. You're listening to Saquon's story right here on Project Recovery. So you're divorced. You're back living with your mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say you're back doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what does that look like? Um... Well, having to get a full-time job and just dealing with the pain of everything, mm-hmm. um, started doing meth again. Because as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I stopped everything. Right. And I was doing everything. Acid, mushrooms, ecstasy, meth, coke, everything. Mm-hmm. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, cold turkey. And then your husband drops a bombshell on you. You mm-hmm. move back with mom mm-hmm. and you got to get a full-time job. You're living with your mom. Mm-hmm. You're now a, a, a mother mm-hmm. and a lot of pressure. A lot of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you go to the tried and true, what you've known to work in the past, and mm-hmm. that is meth. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, a lot of moms feel the same way and um, use that as their answer. And it works until it doesn't work. When does it stop working for you? Very quickly. Um, I discovered crack for a little while. Mm-hmm. And that took me down a dark, dark road I never thought I'd go down. What do you mean? Well, I just never thought I would do the things, you know, that I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. A legal secretary by day, but turning tricks out of some dude's house for a couple hits of crack at night. Not good. No, no. Um, And so that takes you down that dark road at the whole time. Who's watching your daughter? I am. And that's got to be pressure. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, know, looking at in a mirror and then looking at your daughter. And I mean, that's you don't have to be a therapist, but that's got to do some stuff to your brain. Yes. So when does it come to a point where you're like, hey, I think I need some help? Um, well, <laughs> there were many times I thought I needed help. You know, I went to prison. I've done the whole. How long did you do in prison? A year. Almost a year. Getting arrested. You know, my criminal background, my rap sheet now is like 
pages longer than I actually thought it was. When I went to go get it expunged, she comes out with this file, an inch thick. I'm like, oh, really? I don't even remember half of it, but I'm sure I did it. Yeah. Um, but 10 years ago, going on 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, the choices that I made in my addiction led me to becoming HIV positive. Okay. Which was a great reason to stay in the needle, you know? Uh-huh. Um, stayed in a toxic relationship because of it. The person who gave it to me, um, I stayed with him just cause I thought, well, now my life's over. No one else is going to want me. So stayed in that until I just couldn't anymore. You got sick and tired of being sick and tired. It, very. So what was that like learning that you had HIV? Earth crushing. You know, because of the stigma that is still surrounded, um, still surrounding HIV, it, oh, I'm tainted, I'm, you know, less than, I'm dirty, I'm, like, I just hated myself, ashamed of myself. I didn't tell my family for the first five years. Hmm. So I was just like, oh, it's going to be the death of them, and oh, how do I, oh, God, how do I tell them? So now you're afflicted with two things that are heavily stigmatized. Mm Mm-hmm. And your only way to see through it is just to stay in the situation you're in. Mm-hmm. But that's killing you. Literally. How do, how do you manage HIV? Um, so I am on medications which make me undetectable. And if you are undetectable, it is not possible for you to transmit the virus. So undetectable equals untransmittable. Okay, And I've heard that from mm-hmm. a lot of people and and you feel that's working for you in your life right now? Absolutely. Well, good. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but I met someone who, you know, we went out on two dates. So after I left the toxic guy, mm-hmm. I met this guy and we went out on two dates and I was like, oh man, just the fear of rejection. I got to tell him. Yeah. Um, I can't even imagine what that self-conversations like oh wow it's paralyzing because you know we all have a fear of being rejected anyway somewhere on some level Uh we want to be accepted um so knowing that i have this thing now i just got up the courage and i was like look i don't want to start this relationship off on a lie I really like you, you know, we're really vibing with each other, but I have to let you know that I'm HIV positive. And he sits there and he's like, okay, well, what does that mean for me? I said, well, you're good. Like, it doesn't mean anything for you. I'm undetectable. Explain that whole thing to him. But I just, I want to let you know because it's the human respectable thing to do. Yeah, Hmm. definitely. And he's like, well, I don't care if you have HIV as long as I get to have you. That's a keeper. Yeah. Are you still with this guy? Yes. Amazing. So, so that's a pretty good answer. Yeah. <laughs> and he he's the one who pushed me into getting into recovery. And I'd never had a guy ever that I've been with want me to be sober. What? Okay. Well, maybe I'll try it. So – 
um, he also pushed me to speak out about it. He's like, you know, stop letting HIV be who you are and let it be a part of who you are because you are amazing. And it took him a couple years of like having his foot up my ass. Yeah. Speak out about it. Go find people, you know, who were just as broken as you, you know, as you were. Go, go help them. So he got you into recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, off air, you told me that you went in and out of probably eight different recovery centers. Mm-hmm. Is this one he got you into? Was that the last one that worked? Mm-hmm. And where was that? That was Steps. And what did you like about Steps that you felt like it clicked this time? Or do you think you were just ready for the message? I wanted it. I wanted it. So You know, I feel like we've been doing this show long enough now, and we've <clears throat> collected enough data, so to speak, that I think that's the common factor. You know, there are a lot of great programs now out yep. there. There are some that we might say have different things than others, but I think the common factor in success is what you're saying. Because all the other ones were court cases or, you know, to get this case dropped or because my PO wants me to or – so you were doing it for other reasons, mm-hmm. not really because you were ready and wanting to be sober. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the common factor in success, right? You know, a hundred percent. And I think recoveries are like gyms. You know, there's a lot of gyms out there and they've got a lot of the same stuff inside there. And any one of those gyms can get you what you want if you do the work and desire the yep. change. And so you just have got to be, you know, you can find it in AA, you can find it in NA, you can find it in steps, you can find it white knuckle, you can find it on your knees if you want. But you have got to be able to put the work in and say, this is what I want for me. I want it for me because I deserve it. Mm-hmm. Not any other reason than that. Yeah. I want it for me because I deserve it. Yep. And sometimes that's the hardest hump to get over is because I deserve it. Yep. Because you have found yourself down dark roads. You have found yourself in situations that you never thought you would be. But here you are and you've got to live in it. And so sometimes you don't think you deserve it. I, I, and I only speak for me from experiences like, well, I don't think I deserve it. I have, I have wasted everything that's been given to me. Why do I deserve a second chance? And once you decide you do and you're willing to fight for it, yeah, the world's unstoppable. Mm-hmm. But you kind of mentioned, I mean, you didn't use this term like self-worth, but I got the sense from what you're saying that at, at, at that point, you've learned that you're HIV positive. You've, you know, ha- had a failed marriage. You're struggling with an addiction. I assume that your self-worth was pretty low at that moment. But then you meet this person. Was there something about the relationship with your uh, with your guy that, that helped you find self-worth? I assume that – I mean, I want to put words in your mouth, but I assume that you found some self-worth that got you to that point where you're like, yeah, I want this for me. Um, well, it was actually getting into recovery. Well, I'd never had anybody – want to do recovery with me and i was like wow he sees something in me that i don't well you said something interesting you said i've never been with a guy that wanted me to be sober Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna peel that back a little bit and you correct me if i'm wrong that's sort of like saying oh wait a second there's a guy who really just wants me to be me Mm -hmm. exactly and that's that seems like that was a new and maybe exciting slash scary experience to have somebody want to know you for you yep um, but it was in recovery that I finally accepted my status 
and stopped letting the diagnosis define me. Um, and that's actually when I found my purpose, you know, because every other time it was just going day to day, floating, not really having any future plans or goals. Um, and I've been in recovery for three and a half years. I have founded a nonprofit. I do mobile HIV and hepatitis C testing. I get people treated for free, um, harm reduction navigator, uh, peer support specialist, HIV patient navigator for the University of Utah, and HIV advocate. So That is amazing. Look at all that. that th- proving my point that people who are in recovery do some of the greatest work in our community. That is wonderful. And, and what I love is that it, it's a theme that it, it's constant in a lot of recovery is making your mess your message. Mm-hmm. And uh, your message is out there helping those that where you were and get to where you are. Yep. Um, 95% of my clientele uh, are still actively using. Um, we are in a hepatitis C epidemic right now that is not being talked about. Another epidemic. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. Yep. Yeah. But it's not talked about because – they're it's druggies exactly so i am the voice for the voiceless you know just because just because i'm using doesn't mean i don't deserve equal well, access harm, to healthcare. the harm reduction exactly component which i hope is growing in legitimacy in our communities mm-hmm. that we understand that it's not all about either being in active addiction or sober but there's a lot of space in between and Mm -hmm. as people kind of grow and change and develop self-worth and develop a desire to change like we need to support them through that Mm -hmm. and so harm reduction makes a lot more sense than just like hey if you're using you don't get any access to help yeah which doesn't make any sense at all personally i don't think but we find a lot of that in the state yeah but i think it's changing do you do you i mean you're on the front lines of this but the road to recovery is a road, and sometimes it's a long road, and it's going to take you a while to get there. A lot of people think in addiction is so cut and dry. Either you're using or you're not using, and that's how the normies, if you will, see addiction. Yeah. Either they're inactive addiction or they're not, and there's nothing in between. But there's a ton of in-between for those in addiction and getting to where they are. I mean, it took you in and out of eight different recoveries until you found the one and were ready to hear the message and get fit. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's amazing. If people want to find out more information about the services you provide or any more information or whether they just want to bend your ear and talk to you a little bit more, can they find you somewhere? Absolutely. So the name of the nonprofit is Hope on Tap because we don't serve beer on tap. We serve hope on nice. tap. Oh, like yeah. Um, and tap is with two T's and two P's. And it's uh, testing, treatment, and peer-led prevention. Oh, I like it. So hope on tap, T-T-A-P-P. How does that work? Can they find, Face- find Facebook, where you're going? Um, HopeOnTap.com. Okay. Um, and do you have like a mobile center that goes around? Yeah. Or? I just – I come to you wherever you need me to. Oh, great. You know, we've been doing this podcast for four years, and every time I sit down, sometimes I wonder, are we going to hear that story again or this story again? Mm-hmm. And they're all wonderful stories, and they're all a little bit different. But your story today is a unique one, a great one to share, and the one that's going to save and help so many others. So 
So, Juan, thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story. You're it's, welcome. Thank it's you amazing. for having me. And I'm proud to call you a friend, and, and, and I'm impressed with all the wonderful things you're doing. Thank you. Pretty amazing. Very amazing. In fact, um, you know, you're the first person that's come on our show and talked about HIV or any, you know, transmitted diseases that are part of the community of drug abuse and, mm-hmm. and addiction. And I appreciate you being willing to do that. That's part of, you know, helping people get healthy that we don't talk a lot about. And I don't think we've even really had the opportunity with all the guests that we've had to talk to somebody about that. So I really appreciate Absolutely. that. And I love, <clears throat> I love the, the idea of access. I work in healthcare and access is one of the biggest roadblocks in mental health is access. Yep. And the fact that you have a mobile uh, group that can come around and do testing and help people find resources, I mean, that's fantastic. I, I wish you all the best. Well, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for stopping by and sharing your story. I will. Thank you for having me. And we want to say thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. So you're selling pressure doesn't make diamonds. I'm saying let's all buy into that. Yes, it does. Okay. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson and unfortunately we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.